You're listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. Today we're talking the Hungarian Revolution and Refugee Crisis of 1956, and then Vice President Nixon's visit to the Austro-Hungarian border in December 1956. Our guest again is Erwin Gelman. He's a historian and author of two major Nixon biographies, The Contender, Richard Nixon, The Congress Years, 1946 and 1952, and The President and the Apprentice, Eisenhower and Nixon, 1952 to 1961. Dr. Gelman, welcome. Thank you. Just to start off, can you give us a, a bit of a backgrounder on Hungary at the time? Uh, what was its political status in the communist orbit? Uh, Hungary, like most of Eastern Europe that the, the Soviets had uh, put under their uh, uh, domination, uh, were what was Central Europe uh, before World War II and uh then under the Nazi orbit, after World War II, the Soviets uh, assumed control of those governments through puppet regimes uh, for one major reason, and that was to act as a buffer to stop you know, a third invasion of the Soviet Union. So there was a whole series of unrest in Eastern Europe uh, after World War II. There was a uprising in uh, East Berlin. There was an uprising in uh, just before uh, the uh, Hungarian revolt in uh, Poland. And because of the general conditions in Eastern Europe as controlled uh, by the Soviet-dominated governments, there was a great deal of unrest on uh, uh, the the standard of living that those people had. Could you give, um, what was the, was Hungary within the Warsaw Pact? And, and what did that membership entail? Well, again, yes, because it was a, a uh, for want of a better word, a puppet government, uh, it was under the control of the Warsaw Pact with Soviet uh, troops uh, stationed in Hungary and stationed in Poland and stationed in East Germany and stationed in East uh, Berlin. Uh, the nature of the domination, for want of a better word, was totalitarian regimes that were backed up, of course, by Russian might. It had been uh, Nikita Khrushchev, the premier of the Soviet Union, his policy not to be as heavy-handed as his predecessor, Joseph Stalin. Um, in that case, why was... Did Hungary did they had crossed did they cross a line that Khrushchev didn't want crossed despite his, despite his um, you know relative benevolence uh, to well, Stalin? Again, when you kill twenty million people or so, and and who's counting after twenty million people? Uh, Stalin was uh, uh, as much of a, a a tyrant as you could get, and depending on his frame of mind on any particular day, uh, depended on what kind of purge was going to go on and how many people were going to be butchered. But Khrushchev, while he said he was more benevolent, to use your word, than Stalin, in the Hungarian situation, uh, he was uh, as much of an autocrat, if not more, than Stalin was. In what ways was he more autocratic? 
But once the the revolution or the revolt reached a certain stage, he brought in Soviet troops and tanks and uh, uh, whatever it took uh, to quell the revolt. There was uh, no question that this was not going to be a benevolent thing, but uh, you know, a certain amount of uh, Hungarians and, for that matter, Russians were going to die. What was the uh, Eisenhower uh, administration's policy to, to this? Um, how were they, What was their perspective on Hungary in the eastern um, Eastern Europe and satellite states? Um, did they have a? Were they? Was there a particular policy evolving within the Eisenhower administration, or they, was it more of a wait and see approach? Uh, none, none of the above. What it was was a whole series of different layers. Uh, there were many uh, arch conservatives, for want of a better word, that wanted to have what they would call the liberation of Eastern Europe or the rollback of the, the Soviet satellites. Uh, uh, somehow, uh, various factions within the Republican Party and for that matter, in the Democratic Party, wanted to remove the Soviets from Eastern Europe, which, of course, was not going to happen. The Eisenhower administration, and remember that Eisenhower was the first supreme commander of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, and he knew the amount of power and the amount of uh, armed forces that the Soviets had, the amount of forces that the Allies had towards uh, the Eastern Europe bloc. And his basic position was, is you, for want of a better word, you nibbled away. You tried uh, to influence Soviet policy in Eastern Europe. You tried to have better relations with, for example, the Poles and or the Hungarians, etc. And uh, probably the, the uh, greatest benefit was uh, making Austria uh, uh, a, a neutral country in 1955. So the idea was to, to slowly erode Soviet influence in the Eastern European countries. And why was, why was Austria a neutral country at this period of time? Well, the, again, it was a four-power decision. It was the Soviets, uh, the, the British, the French, and the Americans that had spheres of influence. And what they decided was better than having their troops stationed in Austria, they would make a deal where the Austrian government promised to be entirely neutral between the East and the West. And the idea behind it was that there was no real advantage for either uh, the Soviet bloc or uh, the Allies to, to maintain troops stationed in Austria. There was no real uh, benefit to either side. So it was a mutually beneficial thing that all troops were removed from the uh, uh, Austrian state. And again, in addition to that, Austria posed no particular military threat. Was there any um, was there any activity within the Eisenhower administration to support a revolt uh, of freedom of freedom fighters uh, of Hungarian freedom fighters against? Um, you know, the, the Hungarian regime and the, and the rolling of uh, Soviet tanks? There, there were a whole series after the fact of speculation that Radio Free Europe or the CIA or somebody was uh, interested in fomenting revolt in, in Hungary. I, I, don't, I think all of those are specious claims in the United States, especially knowing uh, Eisenhower's military background 
did anything in regard to uh, fomenting a revolt. The idea behind fomenting a revolt would mean, in effect, that the Eisenhower administration would have to deploy troops to Hungary. And, and that was one thing that President Eisenhower slash General Eisenhower had no intention of fighting a third world war over Hungary. What was the, um, was there any idea, could you tell us, could you tell us our audience a little bit about the ensuing refugee crisis? Well, the ensuing refugee crisis was quite simply, there was this massive outflow of people who were seeking asylum outside of Hungary. They uh, felt uh, as as many refugees throughout the centuries that they were being politically uh, repressed, persecuted. And in addition, the standard of living was drab, for want of a better word. The idea was to move out into other countries that would, would give them a better uh, standard of living. The idea where most of these people uh, or some of these people thought that because of their efforts and because of the possibility that the revolt would succeed, that they could move back in a short period of time, which of course never happened. And in the United States, while there has been over uh, since the 20s a uh, legal status to immigration, that status in 1956, because of the deluge of refugees from Hungary to the United States, the Eisenhower administration had to ask Congress for emergency legislation uh, to allow for this flow of, of Hungarian uh, asylum seekers into the United States. And that created problems with Congress and with anti-immigration uh, congressmen over what they were going to do and how long they were going to do it and changing the immigration laws, which they fought uh, desperately not to change. Talking about the anti-immigration sentiment, uh, specifically um, Eisenhower, you write that hiding in place sight was Ike's desire to change America's immigration law, specifically the McCarran-Walter Immigration and Nationality Act. Uh, what was Correct. that? What was that about? And um, how how did he ultimately try to seek to change it? Well, the, the McCarran Act tried to limit immigration even more so to a specific you know, set of immigrants, which uh, uh, frowned upon uh, people from the Soviet Union or Southern Eastern Europe because they were, quote unquote, less desirable. What Eisenhower had was the Refugee Relief Act passed in 1953, which allowed for a greater flexibility than the McCarran Act allowed for. But even that, there was great uh, hesitation, if not actually anti-immigration sentiment in the U.S. Congress, especially in the House of Representatives, to change the legislation. Who in Congress opposed it? Um, the, the, one, the one person that comes to mind is, I think, Congressman Waters or Congressman Francis. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure what his name was, but he was very, very powerful 
in making immigration legislation and, and very much opposed, as was, as a matter of fact, most of uh, organized labor. They looked upon uh, this increase in, in, in uh, refugees coming to uh, hurting the U.S. labor market. You talk about um, Eisenhower sort of bypassing legislative process and granting visas um, to Hungarian um, to Hungarian refugees. Could you talk a little bit about this? How many how many uh, visas were granted, and um, overall, how did the Eisenhower administration help with the um, relief of Hungarian refugees? Well, basically, uh, he used a a loophole through. Uh, uh, a reference with the Justice Department into allowing approximately, I believe, 5,000 emergency visas for asylum seekers. And it was, quite frankly, from Eisenhower's standpoint, a, a, a public relations move to get Congress to pass emergency legislation to allow more Hungarian refugees in, which, again, there were many in Congress that were recalcitrant and just didn't want to change legislation and did not want to allow uh, for these refugees. What Eisenhower and the administration succeeded in was putting enough pressure on them for enough people in Congress to be willing to temporarily change the legislation. I believe somewhere around 35,000 Hungarian refugees ultimately came to the United States. Why did Nixon ultimately send... Um, vice, or I'm sorry. Why did President Eisenhower ultimately send send Vice President Nixon to Hungary in December 1956? Uh, again, it was part of the package of making a a greater public statement by sending Nixon. He was uh, performing a service which drew greater and greater attention. And remember, also Eisenhower sent Nixon in 1952 to the inauguration of uh, the president of Mexico. In 1953, he sent him on a multi-trip around the world to visit various places to bring greater attention to various uh, individuals. In uh, 1955-56, Nixon went to Central America uh, and uh, the Caribbean, as well as to uh, Brazil in early 1956, by sending Nixon to Hungary, Eisenhower was emphasizing Nixon's role and the goodwill that Nixon had uh, accomplished in these earlier missions. And every time, by the way, Eisenhower sent out Nixon to go on one of these missions, he, Nixon went to the White House and informally Eisenhower briefed him on what he wanted done. There were no minutes of these meetings, but it was very clear that Eisenhower was using his own presidential prerogatives to instruct Nixon on what he wanted done and what he wanted to done and have done in the Hungarian crisis is one, said more aid uh, to Austria to allow them to take in more refugees, and two, from his standpoint in the American point of view, was to allow more Hungarian asylum seekers to come to the United States. 
And Nixon uh, uh, did handled both of those assignments very well. Was it also in part to signal to the Soviets that their behavior in the region was unacceptable by highlighting a, a, at least a vice presidential visit there? Oh, absolutely. The whole idea was, you know, the, to, to, to shine a, a blacker and blacker eye on the Soviets to have a, a American propaganda say, look, do you want to live under uh, Soviet rule that's sending tanks into uh, Budapest and, and killing you know, thousands of Hungarians and forcing thousands and thousands more to flee. It was you know, a, a red letter day, a red banner day for American propaganda to have this kind of, of black eye, for want of a better word, on the idea of peaceful coexistence and Soviet uh, benevolence as, you know, you know, going to uh, reach a, another uh, plateau of heaven by being under the Soviet system. When he was there um, in late uh, mid-December, who who did he speak with? Uh, what were the he, you know he toured refugee camps. He uh, was at the meeting with diplomats. Who who did he speak with? He and what, met, were the, what were the purpose of those conversations? Well, again, to draw attention, he met with the, the chancellor. He met with the prime minister uh, of Austria. All of these major leaders in Austria saying, look, you know, the United States has your back. We're sending you more and more money. We appreciate it. He visited refugee camps and said, look what the Soviets are doing. They're forcing all these people to feed the feed, uh, flee their homeland. Shame on them. Uh, he uh, went to the various refugee camps uh, to take uh, photo ops with uh, the little uh, children that were being removed and uh, he played at one place. He played jingle bells to, to uh, uh, again uh, the photogenic and the the press uh, who followed him. Uh, it was a massive, massive press presence and photographic presence of all of this uh, uh, material going on to heighten the awareness of the refugee crisis. There. There's a story about uh, President Nixon or Vice President Nixon being at the embassy uh, late one night, December 19th, uh, and then taking a smaller group with him back to Andau on the Austrian-Hungarian border. Uh, what would he hope to accomplish with this trip? Well, uh, the, the idea initially was he was never going to go to the border because it was too dangerous. The idea was initially he said he had no intention of going to the Hungarian border. But the idea of Nixon going to the bridge to freedom at Andau was such a, a great opportunity that he was actually escorted by the Hungarian police to the border and aided and abetted in this operation uh, to uh, watch and to even assist some of the Hungarians. Uh, go from Hungary uh, over the bridge into Austria as a demonstration of how uh, the Soviet system was failing. What recommendations, you know, upon he, he, Nixon completes his trip, uh, he comes back to Washington, D.C., what recommendations does he have to Congress when he comes back? And he also gives a national broadcast, he gives a national broadcast as well. What does he, to the American people in general, what does he, what does he come back with? 
Well, again, not only does he come back with, but the first person he sees upon arrival is he goes to the White House, where Eisenhower debriefs him. And again, they discuss what they're going to do. And he gives not only this national broadcast about shame on the Soviets, but also the need for the U.S. Congress to allow more of these refugees in. And when he goes in the national broadcast, it's also a lobbying effort to get, to get Congress move. And it's no surprise that because of the pressure of the president, the vice president, and the people that are influencing those refugees that are already coming, that uh, uh, Congress passes special legislation to allow more uh, Hungarian refugees into the United States. Nixon also consulted with Herbert Hoover after the trip, um, who had organized relief for Russia in 1922. What did did Hoover tell Nixon? Again, Hoover was all for this because he helped with uh, uh, supplies of food and clothing, etc., etc. And Hoover, from the standpoint of what he did in World War I for war relief, this was another opportunity for the former president and what he did well and for what people remembered he did well in World War I uh, as a, a, a projection of what the American public should be doing and what the American Congress should be doing as a sort of kind of helping in this war effort with these Hungarians fleeing uh, the war-torn uh, country uh, to come to a better place. It was all, again, you know, brilliantly supervised uh, by the President of the United States. This Nixon's whole uh, experience in uh, the Austro-Hungarian border at Andau was memorialized in a portrait by Frederick Denay, um, appropriately called Nixon at Andau. Could you tell us a little about the artist and the painting? Well, the, the painting is huge. And it, at one point, I don't know now, but at one point it was prominently featured uh, at the, at the uh, uh, president's library in Yorba Linda. Uh, I don't know if it still is or it isn't, but it was a, a gift from the, the painter. The interesting thing is they're crossing the bridge and prominently featured on this, this relatively large painting is this picture of Nixon watching these people uh, uh, cross the bridge. It was a, a very poignant description of, of what was going on in Hungary, uh, how uh, uh, Dade, I think is the way he pronounces his name, I'm not sure, uh, saw this and how grateful the Hungarians were uh, to Nixon uh, in, in uh, uh, his efforts to help the Hungarian people. Nixon later said in his memoirs that the United States could not help the Eastern European satellites free themselves completely from Soviet domination. Um, the idea of armed revolt was futile against uh, the Soviet uh, military superiority. Uh, peaceful change, he reasoned, was the only answer. Uh, why did Nixon, what did Nixon mean by peaceful change? Uh, again, uh, Nixon, what Nixon learned, especially under Eisenhower, was that there was no military option, that the superiority in military might was so overwhelming that there was no way 
that the Soviets were going to be forced out of Eastern Europe. And what Nixon meant by that was that the Soviet government, as he would, would say on numerous occasions, was bound uh, uh, to fail. And in his acceptance speech at uh, the 1960 uh, uh, presidential nomination in front of the Republican convention, I, I don't know the exact quote, whereas uh, Khrushchev says, uh, your children uh, will live under communism. Let us as Americans say to Khrushchev that your children will live under democracy. And it was probably the most famous lines of that speech. But Nixon was, was if not certain, he had this long-range goal that the Soviet system internally would self-destruct. Our guest today is Erwin Gelman, historian and author of The Contender, Richard Nixon, The Congress Years, 1946 to 1952, and The President and the Apprentice, Eisenhower and Nixon, 1952 to 1961. Dr. Gelman, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Please check back our future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroides and your Belinda. 